podcast about leadership management and how drama avoidance can sometimes feel like a full-time job. I'm Rachel Perkins, aka Pie or Pie Bob. I'm into words, operations, cheese, and whiskey, and of course, leadership. And I'm Kendall Miller. I use my phone for almost entirely non-call related things. It is increasingly poorly named. <laughs> Today on the show, we're talking with Nadine Richmond, head of research at Grand Rounds. Hi, Nadine. Welcome, Nadine. How are you doing today? Yay, we're doing great. So glad to have you here, finally. Glad to be here, finally. <laughs> so uh, we're just going to dive right into this. This is a question I've been wanting to ask you for a long time. Please tell us about your path to leadership. Tell us how you got to where you are. Sure. Uh, so I am a longtime user researcher. I'm super fortunate that I was, uh, I started off as a software engineer for a telephony startup and found the path to user research very early on when uh, one of our uh, big customers at that startup had an outage that wasn't an outage. It's just that nobody could actually complete a task. So when I told my undergrad advisor that I was experiencing, that I had just experienced this thing at work, he told me, you've got to take a class next semester called Human Factors. Hmm. Okay. It was fun. It was a great experience. Um, and so from there, I did an internship. And you know, it's funny, I was talking about uh, this earlier with someone who, uh, who I was doing an informational interview with. And to me, it just felt like I've taken the next step each time. And her eyes just got wider and wider every time I described that step. But for me in the, in the position, it always just seemed like it was the natural next thing to do. Mm -hmm. And you, did you like, did you think before going into the class, oh, this might change my career or this, this happened during the course that you took? Um, so I was working on my uh, undergraduate degrees and working full time. So uh, I had no idea that uh, how either of them would interact. All I knew is that I needed to work to pay for school at the time. And, <laughs> and wait, are, are humans ever actually a factor? Um, no, I, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. And usually it's the, it's when they are a factor and you ex don't expect them to, or when they're not a factor and you do expect them to, that causes the biggest breakages. <laughs> I, I buy that. Well, so, so you go and you learn about human factors and what happened from there? Uh, what happened from there is that I took a side trip to Australia to work for the Australian Defense Force Academy doing software metrics research. Although when I talk to people about it now, I tell them that I was equipping sharks with lasers because mm -hmm. you should really have a good story to go along with a position like that. You mean yes. you weren't doing yeah. that? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So how, how did you get that gig? How did you get that connection? I got the connection through a conference. I used to be heavily involved with a programming languages conference that used to be called Oopsla and is now called Splash. Um, I was on the organizing committee of that conference for several years, um, starting as a student. And when I started to say, you know, I was working as so I was finishing up my master's degree and I had made several con uh, contacts through there and talking about you know, my interests in understanding human productivity, how people get things done. Someone I met there said, I'm doing some research in the next year about how developers can be more effective developers. Do you want to come on board? And I said, yes, absolutely. But I'm in Atlanta and you're in Canberra. How do we make this happen? <laughs> and, and so what? And so we made it happen that I got a visiting scholar um, uh, uh, visa to come and spend six months there. 
So is this like on a defense base, defense base in Canberra, or where was this? No, um, think West Point. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. So, so, so university, but most people are in uniform, and I very much was not. Wow. Huh. What was your least favorite thing about that? Um, my least favorite thing about all that was that I was the only woman for miles and miles and Oof. miles who was not working in the cafeteria or reception. Whoa. Yeah. So did everyone assume heavy. that you were working in the cafeteria or reception? Or no, what? because I was also about 40 years younger. Oh. Okay. So, uh, so my very <laughs> first day, as I'm walking across campus trying to figure out what building I'm going to, this big strapping lad comes jogging up to me and he says, "You, you're the American. You're going that way." And he walked me to my building, and he knew that because I was the only woman on campus under the age of thirty. Wow. Yeah. My goodness. That's, I mean, that's like a movie. That's like a, you know, that's like a, a plot to a, to a, a TV show, like how you fought your way through this and, and into, you know, where you are today. So well, what did you learn there? What did you learn any, uh, any like tactics, coping mechanisms that you can pass along? At the time, no, I didn't. Um, I was so excited to be there, and I was, you know, I was finishing up my master's, I was finishing up my thesis, and so the, um, I was just so excited to be in that position and be able to contribute to a project that I was really excited about, which ultimately never ended up getting published, that um, at the time, I don't know that I learned anything there other than how to be enthusiastic. <laughs> Well, uh, sometimes I could use a, a shot of that. Um, yeah, that's still a useful skill. I don't don't play down the how to be enthusiastic. Sure. Well, so then did you jump ship from there straight to Grand Rounds? I mean, what what was the where are the places you landed in between, and what kinds of roles? It was not. Uh, so my next position was to move to San Jose, California, to be an intern at IBM. I had actually applied for the internship at IBM before the Australian one and didn't hear back from them. And so I accepted the Australian position. And then three days later, I got a call from IBM saying, we'd love for you to come on board for an internship. <laughs> of course. So I was able to convince them to uh, let me do the Australian exper uh, position first and then move to California. Wow. So I moved from Atlanta to Canberra to San Jose, all in the course of nine months. Oh, yikes. Wow. <laughs> Some cultural yes. differences there. Well, nicely done. There were a, few, a handful. Um, getting them to let you. Um, and I moved to San Jose. Well, I moved to San Jose in 2001, which um, for those who were around will remember that that was right before the dot-com bubble burst. Yeah. yeah. So did that mean that you got in in time to buy a house for a reasonable price? Or what was the actual implication <laughs> of that? Uh, no. So I was, uh, I hadn't finished my master's yet. I very much could not afford a house in California at that time. The implication was that um, I got to watch the dot-com bubble burst from the inside. I got to see you know, IBM do layoff round after layoff round. So when they, um, they uh, extended my internship at the beginning and then offered me a full-time gig, which I accepted and had to rescind my um, acceptance into a PhD program. Oh, wow. What made you decide to do that? Um, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Mm, yes, very uh, practical there. I also made the decision not to uh, go into postgraduate research and instead go into tech for that very reason. I'm like, soft money. Hmm, no. <laughs> I, uh, well, I especially being... <laughs> 
Well, especially being here and watching the dot-com bubble burst and watching, you know, watching layout round of layoff after layoff. Um, I had a friend living with me couch surfing for a few months because his startup went belly up. Mm -hmm. So when I was presented with the chance to make actual money and have a real job, I ran with it. Sure. Yeah. That's, was there a lasting impact of that, of like just a deep seated fear that this is all going to go away? Or was it more just a respect for, you know, it seems like you're talking a little bit right now about just sort of a respect for what it meant to have a job at all uh, or have that sort of, you know, lastingly impact you, if at all? Mm, great question. Uh, so a few things I would say. Um, one is that I came from a pretty poor background, so I didn't have a safety net. Um, so getting a job that paid as much as a tech job in Silicon Valley does was really quite meaningful to me. Um, and so being able to support myself, you know, no questions asked, that that was a really big deal. Sure. Um, also, one of the things that I learned as I watched that happen is that layoffs happen to good people and that there is often no rhyme or reason for how that happens and why that happens. Were you ever laid off later in your career and had that to look back on and take it less personally? Uh, yes, I have been laid off uh, from my most recent employer um, prior to Grand Rounds, although that was um, quite an experience in and of itself, which I somehow think we're going to discuss. <laughs> I am excited well. to go there. Uh, but let's talk about the in-between, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. We can go there later. <laughs> talk about the in-between first. Um, I, spent, I spent nearly five years at IBM doing uh, human factors and user experience work on various database products. From there, I went to Microsoft and founded the research team on Office for Mac, which was an awesome experience. I'm so glad that I had that opportunity wow, to yeah. work on software that's used by millions totally. of people. And what is, what is day-to-day, -day, Nadine, uh, like I'm clueless to this. I have an idea of what it looks like, but what does is, what is the day-to-day -day actually look like for user experience? Are you, you know, pulling 15 people off the street, handing them a Mac with uh you know, office running on it and seeing which buttons they actually click on or what they think things actually do or what, 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 what does the day-to-day -day actually look like? And maybe compare it to a, a product person full, you know, a full-time like product person, quote unquote, from a startup. Cause I have a box for that. <laughs> Ooh, great question. So yeah, no, so uh, you're certainly right. There's definitely an aspect to, you know, uh, to what you've described, which is solid usability testing. Make sure that the thing that we developed, it actually meets the goals. There's also generative user research to better understand who our users are, what their needs are, and come up with ways that we might be able to meet those needs. So there, you know, um, the software development cycle, especially at that time when it was very much about packaged software that actually ships on CDs and DVDs, you've got much longer lead times to do generative research and then do, and then as you're developing the product, do validation research. Oh. Um, you know, way back in the waterfall days. Wow, yeah. A lot like tech writing change. I mean, I think about this a lot, which means I'm probably... I'm a nerd, but um, the, the, how much jobs like being a tech writer, being a user research person, uh, how much those jobs changed when we went from waterfall to, uh, to agile, to continuous release, to delivery, uh, how much that changes the way you have to do your job. And, and you and I have both kind of lived through that change. And it's uh, about when did that start happening in your career? Did it change the way you thought about your job? 
Um, it changed the way I delivered my job, although I don't think that it necessarily changed the way I thought about my job. Okay. It changed you know, how interact, how teams work with each other and what their expectations were. You know, it used to be that we expected a, a re, uh, requirements written out in advance, set in stone, and we prioritized our features and that prioritization never changed because you cannot change an Excel spreadsheet, of course. <laughs> and then... And then as we finally, you know, as we figured out that maybe this doesn't actually meet our needs or anyone's needs, that we can, that we can take feedback and iterate as we're actually doing the development. What changed for me is not so much what, you know, is not so much thinking about how all of those activities work together, but rather making sure that I understood what the impact was and what decisions were being made based on the work that I was doing. Hmm. Okay. Can you say a bit more about that? Uh, like how 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 do you feel differently about the impact? I am far more thoughtful now about what actually happens in the products that I work on as opposed to just doing interesting research and then throwing it over the wall and hoping that product teams will will do something with it. It's my job to really help the teams understand what we learned, why we learned it, and make the right decisions so that when the ch schedule changes, because of course it changes, that we're all able to make better decisions that are more based in data and not just gut feelings. And did something, is it largely the change in the process that led to you uh, changing the way you, you know, you think about this? Or is it, uh, did something happen? Did you have an experience that changed it? Um, I don't, uh, that's kind of hard to pick apart, I will say, because so much of this, you know, came together for me at the same time. You know, yeah. Agile was becoming more of a thing at the same time as I was growing in my skill set and growing in my career and understanding that, the technical work that we do, no matter whether it's dev or UX or product, is table stakes. Mm -hmm. The actual impact that gets delivered in the products that we ship, that's the difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. And I think agile yeah, development and continuous delivery helps you see that. So it's probably all completely interrelated in how you came to this, you know, to this place in your thought process. But it, it's because you see the impact of what you're doing faster in most of these roles. So you are yes. more closely connected to it. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I think okay. that's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That totally makes sense. Now I think about it. Um, okay. But that was a, a bit of a derail. Sorry. Um, so you're at, you, uh, you're at IBM and lived through a variety of layoffs, it sounds like. And uh, what, uh, and you grew some departments there. Were you in leadership roles at IBM? No, I was still a baby researcher. Ah, uh, okay. And then, so then from there, you went and started the team that worked on um, worked on the Mac Office yes. products. Okay. And so, what was that like? Um, that was a huge amount of fun and really foundational in my career. Yeah, um, IBM taught me how to be a professional. Microsoft taught me how to be a professional researcher. Oh. I learned a lot there about doing great work, about interacting with people, about really pushing a great product and sometimes not so great product out the door mm -hmm. and about, you know, about developing teams, about developing myself there, about the difference between doing solid technical work and doing work that actually gets into the product. Oh. <laughs> was, was that a result like these learning these two different things, is that a result of the culture of IBM versus the culture of Microsoft? Or is it just that you were in a different role when you got to Microsoft? 
I think both of those. Um, at IBM, the user experience team that I was a part of at the time was very much um, more about it being a consultant and helping various product teams out. I moved around from project to project pretty frequently and didn't necessarily have as much of an opportunity to engage as I, uh, as I might have. Whereas when I went to Microsoft, I was working on just on uh, Office Mac and it was you know, there was only me at the beginning, um, and then you know growing the team over time. So very different environment with really different goals as well. You know, uh, creating a productivity suite for consumers is entirely different than than creating a, a series of database solutions that are mostly used by Fortune 500 or Fortune 5 companies. Sure, for sure. Okay, and and I mean, do you look back on both of those? Like you, you sort of talked about what you learned at each, but do you look back on both of those as equally transformative for your career? Or I'm and I'm particularly just interested, you know, IBM and Microsoft, these two very big names, and I'm curious, like, do you look back and think, you know, I'm really thankful for my time at Microsoft, and you know, I can sort of give or take IBM, or is it, you know? both just had their pluses and minuses that, that'll be like a really bad cop-out so i don't want to ask that what are the like i mean i don't know how do you how do you characterize the two or your time at the two um so i so uh, i learned a lot at ibm about being a one tiny cog in a massive machine when I was at sure. IBM, it was 250,000 employees worldwide. And I think it's now at 400 some thousand. Wow. So when I think back on that time, you know, I learned a lot about what it means to be in a company that large and what it means to be successful in a company that large. Whereas when I, you know, moving to Microsoft, the culture is absolutely very different. It is not as much of a business company as um, IBM is. And so you know, it's, um, it's a very different kind of technology company, even though, you know, looking at it for now, both feel pretty old school, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would say so as well. And um, so you, uh, you were at uh, IBM, you had, you said you learned to be, you learned to be an adult, learned to be a professional. That's what it was. Um, and what, what uh, I feel like if you didn't really have a lot of opportunity for leadership there, you were like, you were a cog in a machine and you learned how to do that job and make the people around you happy. Uh, did it take you some time when you moved to a more leadership oriented role, a role where you might have more influence to take you time to be comfortable, like, spreading your wings, speaking up, stating your ideas, or was that also comfortable at IBM? Um, it was, so at IBM, it was comfortable in that there was a framework for it and there were ways that you knew you had to go about doing that. Huh. For my team at Microsoft, it wasn't nearly as well-defined. And so part of, you know, part of my time there was absolutely stumbling through and trying to figure out what that would look like and how to be influential in an organization like that. Yeah, that's because that's a that's a big transformation, both in the change in culture and in the change in your responsibilities, becoming, you know, building a department, becoming a leader, having a having a plan, making a plan for your team. Uh, those things that uh, doesn't sound like you did a ton of at IBM versus at, uh, at Microsoft. 
That's uh, true. And at the time when I started there, I didn't realize that's what I would be doing. You know, they were hiring me to do, you know, for a very tactical way. They were hiring a relatively junior researcher to do that kind of work. And so I grew into that role as the team, as both I and the team matured. Mm -hmm. Okay. What was, so when you were building your team, so it was the first time you'd done something like that. uh, What was the the hardest uh, or most embarrassing lesson that you had to learn during your time there? Oh dear. Um, oh dear. Uh, so I think my most embarrassing I thought lesson this was going to be was... easy. <laughs> oh no, no, no. I had no good. I'm kidding. Sorry. No, it's all good. Um, I think my, uh, so I learned a lot there. I think one of my biggest learnings there was that there are some people who are great at doing the job and there are some people who are great at talking about the job Mm. and you need some of both of those skill sets okay and that uh were you one of those two people you were better at doing than talking about it I'm a nerd. Yeah. (laughs) Same. I've got a computer science degree. I was promised a nerd in a cave. Yeah. So so wait, when you say you're a nerd, you mean you were better at doing it? I absolutely was just, better at doing it than talking just, about just it. Just yes. for absolute clarity, because because I can talk really nerdy. About <laughs> talk a good game. Uh, <laughs> yes. No, it's good. I, it, was, it was really there where I learned that just being able to do the technical aspects of the job was necessary, but not sufficient to actually being successful in the career. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's yep. a good thing to learn. You, you need to help other people understand what why your work matters, what you've done, why it matters, why they should take action on it. That's very important for a user researcher to be able to articulate that to others. So just going out and doing great work is by no means means that you'll be a successful researcher. Mm-hmm. Well, and being so... So now I want to uh, like jump ahead. We we could keep digging into all the minutia here, but you 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 talked briefly about this uh, layoff that happened to you. Tell us. I mean, if you're if you're willing to, first of all, are you willing to talk about it? Yes. Okay. And then you know, tell us a little bit about it from. I'm curious both your personal perspective, but also you know, in in the sense that an employee is a user of the company. You know, talk about it from a user researcher perspective, like. I'm kind of curious how you analyze what happened. Uh, Oh, interesting. I don't know that I've thought through that yet. So that'll be an interesting thing to think about. Um, No, so um, I I was laid off in my most recent role at Genentech, which is a biotechnology company. And I knew that was a risk when I walked in the door, that I was coming in to establish user research into a very non-technical organization. So they, they knew that they needed to better understand their user population, but they didn't exactly know what that would mean or why. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was hired on to help rebuild the software platform that a particular team there uses to deliver their services. When that work was over, I was not at all surprised to see an announcement of a reorg come up and it wasn't very clear where I fit into that reorg. Yeah. Do you feel like you were successful there in in, uh, in that particular task, or was it a shit show? 
<laughs> no, I, so I feel uh, so I feel like I was really successful there. Um, I was able to help an organization that directly helps patients have a far better understanding of why patients need their assistance mm-hmm. and how to engage with them in a way that is meaningful, that is authentic, and that is truly helpful to someone who has a rare disease or a difficult to treat disease that may well be fatal. Mm-hmm. So you know, being able to deal with a, someone who is in that situation such that you can understand what their need is and help meet that and being able to help bring that, uh, bring such an understanding to an organization. I was successful in doing that and I'm really proud of the work I did there. Yeah. Wow. It sounds like you should be. Um, is that the first time you've done work that's related to, uh, like medical uh, outcomes of that type, or is that a, generally your your jam now? Um, yes, star in that um, it was definitely the first time that I did that. Um, however, I will say that back in high school, I used to be a paramedic. Oh, wow. In high school. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yes. Um, I grew up in a really small town and I grew up next door to a volunteer ambulance and fire department. Oh, so that made it a little more convenient. <laughs> It did. Um, my dad volunteered there. And so um, when I was a freshman, I was allowed to sit in on the EMT courses that they were offering to help you know, bolster the volunteer rules. Yeah, um, yeah. And then I aced the first exam and they were like, wait, what do we do with this? <laughs> wow. Are you, uh, ah. but were you were like formally certified? Because I know there's a whole program and everything. Were you, were, did they allow yes. that at that age? Wow. Okay. Cool. Yes. Um, so, um, yes, we had to get special permission to allow me to get a license. But yes, I was licensed. Oh, I actually kept my license up until I was like 28. That's impressive. Well, so, so, but wait, I want to, I want to go back to my question here, Rachel. <laughs> sorry. Sure, sorry, Kendall, no. I hijacked um, the conversation. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, talk about it, Nadine, just, just for a second about, you know, being at, at Genentech as a user of that company and what it meant to leave. And I guess, right. you know, even you saying going in, knowing that that was a possibility, that's kind of different than a person using a product, knowing, you know, there's a chance that they're going to fire me from this product or, you know, whatever. Um, Just, I don't know, talk about that. I'm curious how you just think about that. Sure. Well, so um, when I made the choice to join Genentech, I made the choice to do it because it was a really different way to use the technical skills that I had gained to that point. You know, I'd worked in big um, enterprise software companies up until that point. And so the opportunity to make a real appreciable impact on someone's life was really meaningful to me. So walking in the door, though, I also knew that I was going to be the technical person in a very non-technical organization. And so that there is absolutely a risk associated with that. Bringing in a Silicon Valley software engineer's salary to an organization that doesn't pay those salaries was a risk. Mm. There was no question about that, simply from a business perspective. Sure. And And then when you left, I mean, how did you look back on it? Um, looking back on it, I um, a few things. First of all, is that it was an amazing opportunity to learn about American healthcare in ways that I hadn't considered. I thought I had a pretty good grasp of American healthcare before I joined Genentech, and I was so completely wrong. American healthcare is far more complicated than I realized, and I thought I had a pretty good understanding of it. You know, not only as you know a consumer of American healthcare, but also having gone through my own mother's. Uh, 
uh, breast cancer treatment. Um, she's fine. Great. I feel like I'm absolutely, absolutely required to say that. Yeah. Um, she's fine. Um, at the time, though, you, know, you, you get a crash course in American healthcare when you go through a transformative experience like that. So I thought I was, I thought I understood pretty well. I was completely wrong. I didn't understand half the complication of American healthcare. And so that was, that was definitely one of my big learnings there too, just being a, just fully understanding or maybe not fully understanding, more completely understanding how complicated American healthcare is and all of the barriers that keep people from getting the right healthcare for them. Huh. Sure. Um, yeah, that makes so, sense. Yeah, it, I mean, there's... Exactly. There's... So I want... oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. This is about you. You can... <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, so there was there was so much. I, so I walked in knowing that this was an opportunity that I probably wasn't going to get anywhere else. So you know, being you know and being really excited about that and recognizing that you know going to a company that knows it needs your skill set but doesn't exactly know why or what to do with it was a risk. I'm, um, I also got to learn, I got to learn far more about business than I had before. You know, again, I'm an, um, I like being a nerd in a cave. And so having to learn far more about how business operates was really useful to how I, you know, to how I go about doing things now. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm far more thoughtful about what the implications are about this. It's, it's not just about building interesting technology. It's also about how we're going to make something that actually is meaningful in the marketplace. Okay, there's a lot there, Nadine, that I want to dig into, and, and there's a million more questions I want to ask about that. But for time's sake, I want to move on to, to other topics. So you've been a leader or in leadership for a long time now. I mean, talk about just some of the like big picture. Do you have a, a overarching leadership philosophy in how you think about leading uh, at this point? I do. I do, yeah, um, and it's, this is definitely something that evolved over time. In my first leadership position, I thought that it was just IC plus plus. You know, I thought that it was just you've been doing a great job as an individual contributor. You're just going to continue to do more of that as a lead. And of course, that turns out not mm -hmm. to be true at all. It's often, you know, it's a completely different skill set which nobody warned me about in advance. And even if they had, I don't know if I would have believed mm -hmm. them. Yeah. You know, so when I think about leadership now, it is very much about not only leading through the technical things that we need to do uh, to be successful in our jobs, but also um, being a, how do I put this, leading through, uh, leading through the change that's necessary to be successful in your job, leading through all of the communication that's necessary um, in your job, thinking through how all of the interactions of all of the people around you are meaningful in your career, managing through lots of stress and changes and all sorts Most of definitely. things. Yeah, Did you sure. ever get into, you know, you, you, you came into this role and built, built a department at Microsoft and have led departments since. Did you ever go through a training program? I mean, you went through a training program to get into uh, user, user design, user interaction, user, uh, you know, issues. Um, <laughs> what, Right. Did you get training to do this job, which I would arguably say to some degree is harder for some people? You know, it's funny. Uh, so looking back, um, the times when I felt like I needed a support were the times when I had the least amount of formal support for it. You know, it's, I got lots of training in how to use tools to manage performance, but not actually a lot of training in how to manage performance. Yeah. <laughs> 
Like I, I've watched a million videos on how to on how to use Workday, but not a million videos on how to deliver a difficult. Okay, what to do video. with it? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Right. Oh yeah, a lot of this is ringing true for me. I mean, later on, I got training, and I was like, yeah, this all makes sense. Wish I'd had this, you know, ten years ago. Can't um, you just copy and paste the bad news from Workday into an email and send it to the report? <laughs> You totally can. <laughs> you absolutely can, Kendall. <laughs> For sure. I'm, I'm going I would recommend it, but you can. <laughs> I think I was going to ask what is the best and or worst leadership or management advice you'd ever received, but that seems like that that's right up there, Kendall. Just, you know, paste it in, <laughs> into the email. Right. Exactly. Just, you know, just paste it. You know, I think when I think about the best um, leadership advice that I got, um, one of my four, actually, one of my managers at Genentech, um, one of the things that she is truly masterful at is helping people see what's happened in a difficult situation. You know, that meeting that just doesn't go right or that interaction or that email that, uh, that gets misread. I mean, we've all seen those happen. And the thing that I think she does, she does an amazing job of in which I definitely model her behavior on is how to help someone understand that this has happened, how to, and how to get out of that situation or how to move forward from that situation. You know, the very, um, she approaches it as a problem solving exercise, you know, so first of all, you know, sitting down and, you know, figuring out whether you know that there's an issue at all and helping you think through what the other person or people were experiencing, what they were, you know, how they reacted to things, how you might do things differently in the future. If there's, you know, if there's uh, some kind of uh, post situation fixing that you need to do, what that might look like. She's truly masterful at that. I'm so glad that I had that opportunity to work with her and see her model that behavior so many times. Yeah. Which of course tells you how many times I stumble myself. (laughs) Well, yeah, you, 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 look back on the things that you've learned only when you fail to execute on them. I think, oh, but you still learn them. Just got to execute on them next time. Minor, minor detail. Uh, yes. Yeah. Minor detail. So then Nadine, we ask everybody on this podcast, you know, talk about your relationship with authority and uh, how you feel about having authority over others and um, what it feels like when others have authority over you. Um, ooh, interesting question. So I've got a few different reactions to that. One is that I am sometimes uncomfortable with authority myself. Um, I, I can sometimes have excellent imposter syndrome. Um, not as good, but not real imposter syndrome because I'm not that good at it. Um, anyway. Wow. Wow. Thank you. I appreciate you. I, I appreciate you laughing. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, no. So um, I am sometimes comfortable with authority, sometimes not, I will say. Um, there are times when I know that I have it and that I am implicitly and explicitly choosing how I'm behaving, what I'm saying, what I'm doing, because I recognize that. And other times when I've been caught flat-footed that I have authority in a situation and didn't realize that it was happening. Okay. Can you talk about a situation when that happened? Um, yes, I can. Uh, so I was, uh, I, this, in my previous role, um, I was working with someone on another team and it was really clear he was uncomfortable around me and I could not figure out why. Like, you know, like, I think he's a great person. We'd had positive interactions, but it was also clear that he was like nearly so, so nervous around me that his hands were shaking. 
Whoa. Yes. That's off-putting. Yeah. What's going on there? It was. It really was. And I was like, I have no idea what's behind this. And so um, as I started, you know, as I learned more about him, one of the things that I learned about him is that he doesn't have a college degree. And so he see he's seeing, you know, me today as I am, you know, as as someone with a okay list of accomplishments and who's in a position of authority. And he's like, this person will never listen to me because I don't have her credentials and I don't have her background. And whether that's and true so, or know, not isn't really. Exactly. That was exactly it. And so, you know, he was measuring himself against who he imagined I was. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, thinking of himself as coming from a, uh, you know, as coming from a blue collar background and that someone like me would never listen to him. So how did you address that situation? Um, so once, once I realized that you know, he'd made a couple of comments about his background that clued me in. And so I sat down with him and I said, you know, I think you and I actually have more in common than you think we do. I mean, I can think of a couple of times in my career where I was sitting with someone for whom I had tremendous respect and I was realizing halfway through the conversation that they were intimidated by me and like, that that probably meant they were never going to be comfortable giving me advice anymore. And that I was, and I was kind of devastated in that, like, no, I I still want to learn from you. And now you're not going to feel like you can teach me anything. Uh, And it, and it ruins the relate. Well, it's not like it doesn't ruin the relationship, I guess it just messes with the power dynamic completely. Um, Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and that was exactly it. Is that you know, like um, you know, he was a he's a great colleague, um, someone who I really admired, someone who was doing really interesting work, and so to have him feel like he couldn't talk to me because he somehow didn't feel worthy just blew my mind. Yeah, yeah. And how do you think? I mean, you were able to address that with him personally, but how is are there ways to avoid having that happen in the first place? Ooh, excellent question. Um, so I don't know. And if you have an answer to that question, I would call for your answer. I don't know either. Well, I was really hoping. I mean, I think uh, you can you can be as humble as you can possibly be. You can respond to every situation perfectly fine. And even that's going to intimidate some people because they're going to be like, oh, this person's comfortable with themselves. And that's intimidating mm-hmm. to me. You know, I think... It, it, it comes down to what the other person's insecurities are and everyone has their own insecurities. And at the end of the day, there's just no way, you know, you can humble yourself appropriately in front of everyone because eventually even that. So that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. So that's fair. I will say, um, I, one thing that I definitely learned from that situation, um, is that I am sometimes way too good of a researcher for my own good. (laughs) I am excellent at getting other people to talk about things that matter to them. And I am not good about doing that for myself. So, you know, I come in and I share the data and why it matters and what we should do next. And I don't tell you anything about myself in that process. Yeah. So, you know, like, and I had made, you know, and I had been really deliberate about that for a long time, you know, not, not sharing a lot about my background, not sharing a lot about what I've done or why I've done it. And so in that particular situation, I, um, I created a situation where he could paint his insecurities onto me. 
And I didn't need to do that. Like there's, there's no reason not to share at least a little bit more than what my natural inclination is. Yeah. You know, give, give him something to better understand who I am and why I am this person today so that he can, you know, understand that I'm not making the, uh, that I'm not judging him in the way that he imagines I might. That's super interesting. Yeah. Cause like, it's, it's not, it doesn't have to be about you. It's not about you or, you know, your work relationship with this person doesn't have to be hugely personal, but there's some amount of you needed to make it an equitable relationship. Like, where do you, where do you draw the line? <laughs> uh. I'm probably the wrong person to ask this question because this is absolutely something that I struggle with. Um, <laughs> I, like I said, I'm far better at getting other people to talk about themselves than I am in talking about myself. You know, a few years ago, I had to have surgery and I didn't tell anybody in advance that this was, you know, I didn't tell anybody that I was sick. I certainly didn't tell, I, I had scheduled the surgery three months before I told anyone who wasn't my husband or my closest friend about it. Yeah. So when it was time for me to take, to actually, you know, start preparing to take time off of work. I did like I did so two weeks in advance of the surgery and I walked into my manager's office. I said, so I'm going to be out for probably six to 12 weeks. Ooh. And here's my plan for that out for that time. Yeah. Do you think? Wow. Yeah. And, wow. and obviously you, you I, I know that you had a plan for this. You know, it wasn't like you were going to leave them high and dry. I feel like the difficulty in that kind of situation so often is like once you have not started, it's really hard to start. You know, what, if you've it never is. been that way with anyone that you're, you know, that are colleagues of yours, it's really hard to know how to ease into it. So you just have, it has to be a situation <laughs> like that where you're like, so I'm going to have surgery and boom, you know, like, uh, and I'll see you in a while. Well, yeah. yeah. And so, um, and I think, um, what I didn't realize at the time and, uh, well, I didn't realize many things at the time. One was that my team absolutely knew that I was sick, no matter how well I thought I was hiding it. Um, and secondly, I didn't give them opportunity to support me. Ah, and I didn't create to support you. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and that also means that I didn't give them opportunities to build their own leadership skills in doing that. Ah, yeah. How would you address that differently now? Um, so a few things, first of all, would be to actually admit that I was sick. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, and that I was struggling that, you know, that I was experiencing something truly difficult and that it was impacting, it was impacting how I was seeing things. It was impacting how I was reacting to people or situations, um, and that I was out of the office a lot more mm-hmm. and that I needed people to, and that I should have used, uh, leveraged my team to do more work instead of just trying to take everything on myself. Yeah. I, I also, you know, problem. Exactly. And also, you know, I mean, I left my team trying to guess what was going on. They're not stupid. Yeah. They recognized that something was happening. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't know why it was going on. And so, and they knew that I wasn't talking about it. They'd all definitely figured that out. So they felt like, they felt like I didn't trust them. And that they couldn't ask, of course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That is exactly it. So, you know, they had someone who they felt like they could talk to, but who they all recognized that was not returning that. And so it felt like I didn't trust them. Oh, that is a terrible and uh, fascinating and a super important thing to learn. This idea that giving them an opportunity to support you is a way for them to grow as leaders. It's kind of yes. mind blowing. 
uh, at that level. And to build trust with you. Exactly. Yeah. It actually improves your ability to lead. Exactly. And so, you know, so essentially, you know, so disappearing, you know, having a plan in place. So every, so it was very clear that I knew this was coming and that I'd been working towards, you know, uh, towards handling the situation. Um, you know, so knowing that this had happened and then, you know, not telling them anything about it, just saying, see on the other side. Mm-hmm. They're like, wow. So, <laughs> Exactly. You know, that was, that was a really bad thing for me to do to my team in retrospect. I definitely should have handled that situation far better than I really did. Did you get closure? Did you come back afterwards and were able to sort of resolve that, that issue with them? I did, although it took some time uh, because, uh, so I ended up being out for three months. Mm -hmm. And then of course, you know, you're not a hundred percent when you come back after that amount of time out of the office. So it took some time both for me to recover to a point where I could hear that message yeah. and also for them to be comfortable saying anything to me. Mm -hmm. to, for you to process the, the mm -hmm. thing that you learned about that situation. Did you just figure it exactly. out or did someone say something to you? A mix, I would say. Yeah. You know, there was, there was, when I came back, there was definitely something wrong and I didn't know what was going on. And I wasn't sure whether that was just me still recovering mm -hmm. or business changes, you know, or, cha you know the, or there'd been a reorg while I was out. Um, you know, there were several things, of course, when you're out that long. Um, it wasn't, I just, I knew something was off and I didn't know why. Mm -hmm. And so as I started probing around, um, finally it was a colleague on a sister team who said, you never let anybody try, um, you never gave anyone room to mm -hmm. support you. Well, good for that person. And yes, good on you. Oh, for absolutely. Taking yeah. that message on board, even in such a difficult time. Feedback is um, a pain in the ass, but also a gift. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you about advice that you would give to young leaders and, and a lot of it. I mean, that right there was, was pretty great advice and sounds like stuff you learned some yeah. of the, the hard way, but for, for time's sake, as we're coming up here towards the end, I do want to ask just a little bit about, uh, you know, just sort of what, what keeps you interested outside of work? Tell us something about, uh, non-work hours, Nadine, do you, do you go out and, uh, read the, encyclopedia because that's research all the time uh, <laughs> are you playing uh, into this nerd I, I love where you there. That, was, that was such an excellent example Kendall um, I am a music nerd in addition to a research nerd okay so I I go to like 30 or 40 different live performances a year wow oh wow and one one yes. specific I mean all violin performances or are you into metal or something in between <laughs> um, I do love Nine Inch Nails. I'm seeing The Cure in a few weeks. Um, I recently saw Casey Musgraves. I saw the San Francisco Symphony this past weekend. Oh, wow. I love musicals. Essentially, if you put someone on a stage, I will go watch I, it. I bet I can ruin that for you. <laughs> I love that's where the first place your mind goes. <laughs> Challenge of. accepted. How can I ruin this for someone? <laughs> I can get on a stage and make her feel like she has to qualify that next time. Um. Uh -huh. Oh, I like. Um, I have definitely left blood of performances, <laughs> um, but I'm pr I'm pretty willing. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. awesome. The, but I think what I just learned was don't accept an invitation from Kendall. Mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. I don't All go right. to almost any live performances though. So if it makes you feel any better, it's it's a low probability. So what's the next show you're going to? 
Um, actually, tonight I am going to see uh, Trevor Noah, the host of oh, The Daily sweet. Show, do a stand-ups piece. Oh, wow. yes. yeah, that's fantastic. I bet that's going to be great. Cool. And so, yeah, super excited for it. My first time seeing him. Uh, and yeah. uh, let's see. I, I, yeah, I think we do have to wrap it up here. So where can folks find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. My username is Nadine. Nice and easy. Nice, nice. I'll put that in the, the notes so that it's spelled correctly. Because uh, that's important. Thank you. Um, but thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much, Nadine. It's been great. This was awesome. Thank you.